Welcome to Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I'm your host, Dr. Rick Green, and in this series, we will talk to the editors and experts featured in Selected Readings in General Surgery, a publication that highlights highly relevant and practice-changing information from the world's most prominent medical journals. As busy professionals, we don't always have time to read the most current studies. The goal of this podcast is to bring that information to you, providing key takeaways, insights, and perspectives from leading authorities in all surgical specialties and multidisciplinary areas that affect the surgical patient. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons. Welcome to this edition of Surgical Readings. Uh, I'm Dr. Rick Green, and we're really privileged today to have Dr. Sandy Cavalucas, who's a member of the uh, Department of Surgery at the University of Louisville and uh, specializes in colorectal surgery. Sandy, welcome to Surgical Readings. Excellent. Thanks uh, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate you uh, and Dr. Flint and all the members of the editorial board of selected readings uh, for the magnificent work that you do and the educational value of these. And I know today we're gonna to be discussing a little about the three-part series on uh, colorectal disease. So let's get into it. Um, first of all, one of the uh, areas of interest uh, I know for you as a colorectal surgeon is perianal disease, uh, benign perianal disease. So I'd like to ask you about management of perirectal abscess. That's always uh, an important area for any surgeon called to the emergency department or whatever. And I, I wonder how, what would you recommend for a first course a patient comes in, new perirectal abscess, how should we approach that patient? I think that this is, uh, they're usually pretty straightforward the first time around. Obviously a history of how often this has happened to the person might um, be may take your management in a separate direction, but you know if it's obviously something that is uh, clear to see on clinical exam and fluctuant, and you need to either do it at the bedside or in the operating room to get source control and drain the abscess, I would say that's really the only thing that should be done on the first uh, encounter. Um, even though you know we know these start from cryptoglandular abscesses at the distal anal canal and. About 50% of the time, these abscesses can be uh, due to anal fistulae. However, if I find a fistula at the time of my initial debridement uh, or incision and drainage of an abscess, uh, they also carry about a 50% rate of healing on their own. So I would encourage you at the very first you know, episode of this has never happened to me before, even if you do see a fistula, just drain the abscess and see if it will heal up on its own. Uh, and if it were to come back or become a nuisance problem, then you're headed down the more the anal fistula pathway. So I'm assuming that you're not going to jump to a C-ton at the uh, first evaluation of the patient. Correct, correct. One of the things that comes up frequently is uh, perianal disease in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, such as Crohn's disease. And I'm, I'm wondering, is your approach any different in the patient with known Crohn's disease than it would be in a a de novo perirectal abscess? Yeah, it's much different. Um, I get, a, this is a vast majority of my practice because I have, I do a lot of research in Crohn's disease, uh, get a lot of these patients referred to me and especially on them, it's, 
important to realize that source control is um, a very um, high priority for these patients because a lot of them are the biologics can be immunosuppressive. They may be on steroids. Um, and, and therefore, even if you IND it tonight and you feel like that's that's the that abscess is gone, I would then encourage you uh, for sure to put a CTON in to allow some continued drainage so that the abscess doesn't come back and then it delays a Remicade dose uh, or put some kind of behind the eight ball. A lot of times I get these patients in clinic specifically to have CTONs placed when they have kind of perianal disease that comes and goes so that the gastroenterologist can then feel more confident keeping them on their, their anti-inflammatory um, medications. So with Crohn's disease, they almost always will get a CTON placed to help in the future with continued drainage uh, and you know, definitively fixing whatever fistula they have is a complete other you know, algorithm of when to do it and what select patients that should really be best done with a specialist. Excellent points. The other thing I'd like to ask, because sometimes we're concerned about maybe underlying malignancy, sometimes we're concerned about what type of organisms are involved, what's the role of uh, biopsy, what's the role of uh, taking cultures in these patients? You know, I, uh, I really don't go hard against unculturing because it's usually such a mixed bag of, of polymicrobial um, you know, it's very rarely just one uh, bacteria that causes a problem and almost uniformly, you know, treating with augmentin or, you know, ciprofloural or whatever the soup du jour is almost always takes care of that problem. Um, you can certainly get a malignancy in a very chronic appearing fistula tract. Again, very few and far between. I think I would have to, I would reserve, you know, biopsies of fistula tracts in a Crohn's patient for somebody that has had either a change or has been followed and something's not looking right or it's been there for a pretty long period of time. Um, definitely good to keep on the radar and keep in the back of your mind, but um, very infrequently seen. Okay, excellent points. Let's go ahead and transition again to another topic that uh, obviously is, a, is incredibly important, and that's management of diverticular disease. And uh, it's covered beautifully in the selected readings. Uh, one of the things I'd like to ask, uh, obviously, some of us uh, trained in the era where there was a three-stage procedure. Uh, this has changed uh, dramatically uh, over the years. So I'd like to ask you, uh, if you're considering taking care of a patient with uh, diverticulitis uh, and certainly a complication of a perforation uh, and abscess, uh, what is the role of a stage procedure versus a, uh, a one-stage uh, with anastomosis? Uh, the role of the staged procedures nowadays are uh, definitely, you know, as much as we'd like to say they're few and far between, in actuality, they really aren't. I think that I love the literature out there and I really push, you know, our residents to think about the next steps down the road and the rates of, of stoma reversal. Um, the, the data is plentiful that, you know, doing uh, Hartman's pouch with an end colostomy has a reversal rate of about 50 to 60%. Whereas a primary anastomosis with a diverting loop ileostomy will have a reversal rate upwards of 90%. So I think that uh, it's something that you should always be your goal whenever you go into an abdomen for, um, for diverticulitis, uh, especially in a, in a setting of, you know, Hinchy 2 or 3, some studies even say Hinchy 4. 
Um, but it's that can be your your desired goal. And then once you get in there, as we always say, the condition of the bowel, the condition of the patient, um, you know, kind of are those are is everything in your favor to achieve your goal. Um, I we we will, I think, uniformly and it's might be harder out in the communities given interventional radiology capabilities, but it's uh, very much recommended to try to drain abscesses and try to get rid, you know, downgrade the diverticulitis as much as possible with medical interventions so that you can then go ahead and do a lap, you know, straightforward laparoscopic or robotic resection without having to do any kind of uh, stoma creation. Excellent point. I, I was going to ask you um, regarding in, uh, invasive procedures versus minimal access. Uh, what are your indications for uh, open procedure versus attempting a, a laparoscopic uh, procedure in these patients? Uh, my indications would really be sepsis and hemodynamic instability. You know, if it's something where I need to get in there quickly uh, and and kind of take all of the fanciness out of the equation, then that's when I would do open. I think other than that, uh, nowadays. I tell all of my patients there's I luckily I have it hasn't happened to me enough times because I learned after the second time. Once I get into an abdomen and it's not as bad as I thought it would be. Now, even if I think it's going to be bad, I'll at least start by putting a scope in because maybe I'm wrong and we can do it laparoscopically or, or robotically. Um, so I think that going straight to an open diverticular resection, I would really reserve for somebody that has large amounts of free air, a large amount of, you know, intra-abdominal fluid where they clearly have perforated and there's going to be quite a mess in there to clean up with, you know, really good lavage and suctioning and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, that's right now for me when, when I would start with an open procedure. So assuming that we do a loop bileostomy and a protective uh, stoma on these patients, how long do we wait before closing the loop? And what studies should we get prior to closing the loop? Yeah, it's a good question. There, is, there are two separate thoughts in literature. One I have only seen uh, anecdotally and, and have heard of, and that's you know, a lot of people I think are very reluctant to make loop ileostomies because they're very concerned about high output ileostomies to a point where a lot of people won't do it. I don't think that that's uh, a good default. Um, there are plenty of ways to treat high output loop ileostomies um, that very rarely do people need pick lines and home IV fluids. And if even if they did, I would say kind of so be it, um, but it's because it's so few and far between. Uh, but if you made a diverting loop ileostomy and let's say they have crazy high output that you can't control, there are some studies to support reversing that in as early as 12 days. If you get a gastrographic enema and it doesn't show a leak, theoretically you can take that stoma down. Do I know anybody that does it? No, um, but it has been done and it's been reported. My typical practice is at about six to eight weeks after surgery, I get my gastrographic enema. If that does not show a leak, then I kind of get them on the OR schedule for 10 weeks afterwards. I tried to limit it and do six to eight weeks, and I found that the adhesions between the bowel and the fascia were just kind of so tenuous that even those two extra weeks make a world of difference for the ease of reversal. Now that six to eight, you know, the eight to 10 weeks after surgery for a diverting loop ileostomy is much, much better than the mandatory six month or longer wait that they would get from a colostomy. Okay. Uh, the obverse of this uh, question is, uh, supposing we find a defined abscess, and we drain it effectively, how long do we wait before we should do a primary resection and anastomosis? 
I would typically wait around six to eight weeks. I would probably get a repeat CT scan at the four to six week mark and make sure that things have continued to resolve or that the abscess has been completely drained. Uh, you know, do your, your colonoscopy at that time to make sure that you've cleared the rest of the colon if you're going to operate on it or to make sure that, you know, things otherwise are, are what you think they are and they're not a sigmoid cancer that needs further workup. Uh, and then I think six to eight weeks after, you know, their initial drainage of their abscess should be a safe time to go ahead in there. I'm so glad that you mentioned malignancy. There's always has to be something in our mind. And sometimes uh, that's, uh, that's what we find. Mm -hmm. Let's move on then to uh, some of the other management of diverticular disease. Uh, I know that there are ASCRS guidelines, and I wonder if you might go over those, especially in some of the indications for patients who have had recurrent problems, uh, maybe pain, maybe inflammation, when do we start thinking about an operation? Sure, that and that's actually something that um, it's it obviously has changed in the past easily 20, 30 years. I remember going to medical school as a physician assistant, and I remember seeing my uh, attending surgeon ad nauseum tell everybody, you know, three strikes and you're out, or you know, three strikes before the age of 50, and you need to have an operation. And now the, uh, that has definitely changed. Um, I would say in the past 20 years, there's been multiple studies to prove that your highest chance of perforating uh, is after your first episode. Um, kind of the more attacks you have, the colon will almost build itself an armor um, with all the scar tissue. And so your chances of requiring a bag obviously they never go to zero, but they, they go down with the repeated attacks. So a lot of times if I see patients in the office and they say, oh, I'm scared to death of having a bag, I wanna have surgery. I feel like it's my duty to at least educate them. I can't guarantee them that they wouldn't have a bag, but that they should at least, according to the data, um, that's not an indication to do the surgery. Things that make me kind of, you know, our, our official uh, society guidelines are that it should be, it's always a decision between you and the patient and you just say you know i sit down and talk to them about how often has this bothered you has it how many times do you feel like you're missing work um you know kind of feel them out as far as you know if it's if it's an uncomplicated disease first time i don't think it would be reasonable to jump straight to surgery if it's somebody that's had maybe an attack a couple times a year or every year for the past five years and they're like hey i you know this ever when it hits me it hits me hard i go down i take a week off of work or i keep getting admitted to the hospital um, then i think it's a reasonable thing to discuss we tell people that if it's complicated diverticulitis like an abscess that needed ir drainage um, or something like that then we would you know kind of go more in the favor of recommending it but again not mandating it um, then when you have different kinds of diverticular diseases like colovesical fistulas um, or things that are obviously causing recurrent urinary tract infections, then for me, it's a little bit more of a no-brainer where, look, you're going to keep getting sick because of your diverticular disease. That's kind of where our society stands right now on how hard we recommend or push for a sigmoid resection. What about the patient who's had their first diverticular bleed? What would be your recommendation? I would just our normal, you know, fiber, try to avoid constipation, medical management of diverticulitis, um, diverticular bleeds. 
notoriously um, are elusive. And even if you think you're taking it out and you have it localized, you almost certainly probably don't, or it's just gonna happen somewhere else in the colon. Um, so I really, I very rarely would uh, do an elective resection for a diverticular bleed unless it was very well documented that it's the same place every time and it was recurrent and it was requiring transfusion. So in patients with diverticulitis, does the location of the diverticulitis in the colon uh, affect your decision-making versus left-sided, right-sided? Um, not really. Uh, I think right-sided diverticulitis is, uh, is such a rare entity um, that I think if somebody developed right-sided diverticulitis the first time, I don't think I would say this is a weird location, we should take it out, um, especially in the fact that if you did have right-sided diverticulitis that did perforate, your chances of having to make an ileostomy would be slim to none unless they were hemodynamically unstable. Um, so I would actually maybe be a little bit more uh, patient with the right-sided, but I would, I would be very worried that if they had a repeat attack or they kept getting right-sided diverticulitis, since it's such a rare thing to see, and as we know, the stool on the right side of the colon is liquid. Um, I would worry that there's some other process going on there that we are just getting distracted by a radiographic finding of a diverticuli. You know, over the years, there have been many uh, recommendations about how to reduce the opportunity of diverticulitis. Do you tell your patients any particular things? I know you're interested in the microbiome and things like this. How, how do we reduce the opportunity to have diverticulitis? That's a great question because I feel like that's also something that changes regard depending on what our you know what decade we're in and what we think is causing it. I think if we if we knew um, if we had a really good grasp on what caused the diverticuli, I think we would I could give my recommendations with more um, vigor. Uh, we do know that constipation uh, seems to, everybody has a Western diet or well developed you know Western society seems to have a higher incidence of diverticulitis. Um, I always, I think every colorectal surgeon that you meet uh, will strongly recommend fiber supplementation for almost anything out there. Um, and and I practice what I preach for sure. Um, you know, trying to have some stool balking agents or something that kind of, we call it clean up the stool, but helps the stool sort of stick together. It goes as it goes through the left colon and not allow you know, little pieces behind to get in the diverticuli and, and cause some inflammation is is one theory of how you can prevent it. When patients ask me if they should take probiotics, I definitely don't think that there's any harm in doing it. We don't yet have the data to suggest that a probiotic will help, but we do have uh, more and more evidence coming out showing patients that have had diverticulitis where they do test the microbiome and find changes um, in the colonic mucosa in the area of diverticuli. So I don't think there's any doubt that that's, we're gonna find out shortly that you know it can be related to some dysbiosis at that level. Um, but right now, you know, as you know, it keeps getting perpetuated as most, most myths do, the nuts and seeds thing, you know, I make sure that tell the patients that that's been disproven repeatedly. Um, and no matter kind of really what they eat, I don't think anything's gonna make it worse. In part one of this edition of the Surgical Readings Podcast featuring Dr. Sandra Cavalucas, we discussed important concepts of managing perirectal abscess and diverticulitis. Please join us again for part two 
as we discuss further surgical principles of treating colorectal disease, especially malignancy. Thank you for joining us on Surgical Readings from SRGS, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please let your friends, trainees, and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag SurgicalReadings. You can subscribe to Selected Readings in General Surgery at facs.org slash srgs. Options are available for individuals, institutions, and residents. I'm Dr. Rick Green. Until next time, thank you for listening and learning.